welcome once more, ladies and gentlemen, to the Working Man's Honest Bicycle Program at WHPP. We are a place for heady conversation on cycling topics, uh, a podcast by bicycle lovers for bicycle lovers. I hope that's you. I'm Greg in Boston. With me, as per usual, across the internet in the snowbound city of Minneapolis, it is Matteo. How you doing, Matteo? <laughs> I'm great. Uh, it is July, uh, June, and so I'm <laughs> pleased to report that there is no snow here in Minnesota. It's June 22nd. It's June 22nd. There's no snow in Minnesota. Um, it's getting quite warm. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it, here too. Here too. I actually, I was surprised. I've been to Minnesota a couple times now, mm-hmm. uh, as you know. Uh, one time, the most recent time was in February, and it was it was cold. Though everyone told me it was quite warm, <laughs> and. Then the time before that was in uh, actually around this time of year, I'd say late June. Uh, I was in Minneapolis, and it was it was quite sticky. It's the, I would say. one of the things that my you know I'm from the East Coast, and you know that the, our listeners don't all know that, or maybe they picked it up by my brusque attitude. Um, and one of the things that my <laughs> my East Coast people don't entirely understand is that you know so the winters here are much longer and much more miserable than they are. Yeah, on most of the East Coast, and that counts New England, where winters are long and miserable. Um, Minnesota, much longer, much more miserable. But the it's not like the summer is like several months of like pleasant and cool weather where you can like look good in pants and a t-shirt. No, it is like just as hot and just as humid and just as sticky as any unpleasant place in North America. I, I would say based now my exposure was limited, but it seemed it seemed uh, potentially like the summer in Minneapolis could actually be be quite a bit worse than than it is here in Massachusetts. It could be. It's likely to be shorter. Um, yes, but well, I thought I thought it could get hot here, and that it was it got too hot at a certain time of year. And then I lived in uh, Tennessee for four years, and it's no, it doesn't. You know, it it gets a. Uh, it'll it'll get hot here for like two weeks where it's really unpleasant and the rest of the time it's really pretty nice and in tennessee it's like really unpleasantly hot for three solid months i was just in indianapolis which is not far from tennessee give or take mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was like yeah. Yeah, it was like 90 degrees and just like viciously hot and humid and unpleasant and this was in early june and i was like why is it so terrible here and everyone was like oh it's this is a swamp it's just always like this <laughs> middle of the country it's awful you know i i learned in my uh climatology course in in college that this is the result of something called continentality continentality is that yes, continentality is that having the characteristics of a continent it is it is being further uh into a continent and further from oceans hmm. Hmm. also also the eastern coasts of continents mm-hmm. much more continental than being the same uh number of miles or kilometers or other distance units from the coast on the west coast of continents huh fascinating isn't it prevailing winds that's why yeah so okay <laughs> uh anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna mull that over but we should probably move on this has been the Working Man's Honest Barometric Podcast. <laughs> WHPP. Uh, <laughs> you know, that was loose. It was loose, but I made it work. 
uh, so yeah, so I, anyway, I hope that the recording today is good. I, am, I, I wanted to let you know, I am recording today for the very first time from my official home office space. All, although today, uh, well, I mean, office might be too generous of a word right now. It's probably, I'd say, more of a productivity cavern. But, you know, it's office-like. But I hope it's not too echoey is what I'm saying. I, on the other hand, have the living room windows wide open, and so we're likely to hear the arguments of passersby, uh, the strange gaseous sound that buses make when they come to a stop, and things rattling in the wind. Oh, well, I'm a little bit disappointed by your lack of commitment to audio purity, but uh, <laughs> we'll work with it. Sometimes <laughs> I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion, Greg. <laughs> Yeah, I don't like that movie very much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's talk about movies now. No, today today we have, uh, I believe, a somewhat topical show. It's summertime. Isn't that right? Absolutely. It it's, is summertime. It's summertime. And, that, and what does that mean? What does that mean in cycling terms? That means only one thing, Greg. It means that for three weeks in July, we're going to be insufferable. And people, we and people like us will be kind of insufferable. Yeah. We're talking about the Tour de France. We are. And it's kind of like the Super Bowl where, like, even if you don't really care about it, like, it's, you're steeped in it and it is just absolutely prevailing. You know it's happening. It's a big deal. Yeah. And it's a, it's a momentous sporting occasion in the year that you can't whether or not you want to pay attention to it you kind of can't help it yeah well especially if you care even the tiniest iota about bicycle racing so i think that uh i think we're going to talk about it a little bit maybe uh i don't know talk about some prognostications talk about the favorites maybe de- discuss some competition that we can engage in uh, hmm. Things like that. Hmm. So I couldn't help but notice that this year's Le Tour of the France doesn't even start in France. Where does it start? Boy, I haven't really been paying that much attention to route. I hadn't really thought about that too much. <laughs> uh, this year's tour starts in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And it has a couple oh, boy, a couple has stages. Been a really popular yeah i'm sorry that's okay yeah start grand tours lately yeah when i was in rotterdam they had like the painted on streets the route of the prologue from some number of years prior when from when the tour had started in rotterdam but yeah so you know the tour de france starts in the netherlands this year spends a day or two in belgium and then uh and then makes their way throughout all of france like you do on the Tour de France. Like you do. You eventually wind up in France. Yeah. So, okay, so I, I feel the need to ask. You know, I, I know that you uh, are um, an enthusiast of professional bike racing. Um, sure. And I think the Tour is actually kind of polarizing because uh, some people love it for its incredible sort of festival and nature and gigantic sporting affair. And other people, you know, find it to be 
Well, I already compared it to the Super Bowl. Some people find it as intolerable as the Super Bowl. Just this... Kind of gauche. Yeah, just a little bit too much in an, in an era where, you know, we often are interested more in the rugged and the authentic than the polished and peaked and elaborate. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I would... Um... I would say I kind of fairly on a like as far at least as much as I feel this way about any bike race I I fairly unabashedly love it. Um, it's just you know so much. It, it's like never there's never any other time when more people actually care about what's going on in bike racing. Mm-hmm. And it's you know even people who don't care that much. So I don't know. It's like you can get swept up in it a bit, and it's it's fun it's fun and it's also the time lately where there's just the easiest access to actually watching bike races enough to make it kind of worth the effort because the effort is really low like i have not been doing a whole lot of watching bike races this year i mean i've been busy i have a job yeah you know whatever um and and there are other things that we might talk about there are other reasons that that could be the case but but yeah, I haven't been doing like tons of actively watching lots of races, especially since the spring classics, but the tour, I know that I'm probably going to watch just about every day. I love it. I, my, some of my fondest memories of, you know, getting into professional bike racing. Well, first of all, I do want to say, I, yeah. I do have, you know, I have, I do have reservations mm-hmm. for sure. And, you know, there, there is, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's this kind of unavoidable, uh, little problem of you know this 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 weird period from 1999 to 2005 where it's like uh, there is this guy's name on the results but with an asterisk next to it and like oh no one won this race <laughs> uh, and and it's a little awkward and then there's some weirdness you know after it so it's always this kind of stuff always touches the tour and that makes it weird there's the very big corporateness of it there's how top heavy it you know it is in terms of its place on the cycling calendar um but you know that's kind of how it is and, and yet in spite of that it is usually pretty fun to watch i think so anyway i'm sorry you were saying no that's fine i i was really drawn to your point about uh it being so easy to watch and so easy to get information about And as I was actually walking to my local pizza place earlier this evening, I was mulling this very point over because I haven't thought much about, like, what this year's route of the tour is like, or um, I haven't thought much about, you know, who is coming into the tour on really good form or, like, any of this stuff. Partially because when we get to, like, within a week of it, there's just going to be so much news. There are going to be so many, like five stages you can't miss or you know exciting finishes in the first week and a half you know like there the i I know that bike racing is like hard to watch and a little bit difficult to get into and start understanding but like once once you do a little bit it's there's there's a lot of information about the tour de france i mean even just on steephill.tv and cyclingnews.com um sure and i think actually the tour de france does have the advantage of um For all that, I think that the understanding of the Tour de France has been uh, a little bit polluted by, well, by the machinations of not necessarily Lance Armstrong, but people like Johan Bernil, uh, director sportif, 
you know, associated with it. And, and given, you know, they really worked hard to give this idea that uh, the tour is this like ridiculously complicated race to, to go to and win, uh, like tactically speaking. And it's very complicated and hard to understand, but it's kind of <laughs> not. It's actually grand tours as, as bike races go, um, pretty much work down, you know, come down to who has the most power and doesn't crash. Uh, and so it's relatively, it's relatively straightforward to understand if you don't let yourself get too intimidated. I would, I would, I would nuance that a little bit. I think you're, you're, that's funny. Who has the most power and who doesn't crash? I think that's, that's pretty right. Like, especially sort of early on, you know, this is a three week long race and for the first, for the first two weeks it is, yeah. Like who's got the best power to weight ratio and who hasn't crashed and gotten caught behind a split and lost time. And then when you get into this last week, it's like, it's just day after day after day after day of ridiculous, like, mountain stages and just these absurd death marches. I mean, this is really the the formula for most Grand Tours is, in some capacity, it just turns into a death march. And for everyone's form and fitness and power to weight ratio... For the Grand Tour contenders, or rather, excuse me, for the general classification contenders, it's just like, who survives? Who is able to keep going uphill when everyone else says, F this, I can't anymore? Yeah. And, but yes, I would, (laughs) I very much agree with the point that, yeah, it is, especially now, you know, when we're seeing, like, slower times up some of the iconic climbs and we can combination of slower yeah and and we can can get to that a little bit more a little bit later on but um we're in an era of racing that's very different from the the big sort of epo and blood doping era and riders just kind of slog their way up these climbs just hoping that they don't crack that's it Yep, everyone's just climbing as hard as they can. Mm-hmm. Every single stage. Well, it's you know we talked about this back in the classics. Really, it's sort of like that writ large. Whereas, as we said about especially the big monument classics, particularly a race like uh, Paris Roubaix or Liège Bastogne Liège, it's it's a bunch of guys uh, just beating the crap out of each other uh, for two hundred and fifty kilometers and tactics matter but it's it's really about who can take the most punches you know and still stay up and and the tour de france is a lot like that but over three weeks instead of over you know 250 kilometers it's you know it's 10 times as long right it's like 2500 or is it 3000 i don't even i don't even know it's a freaking long way <laughs> it's a long way i remember <laughs> yeah a long time i remember uh someone that i know saying that uh you know, there there are these differences in ways that amateurs and pros use their equipment. And he was saying that, you know, in a bike race, I'm like constantly shifting and jumping and moving around and like trying to follow attacks and trying to find the right gears and this and that. And when pros race, you know, what they really do is they like they put it in the 12-2 cog and they go to the gutter and they stay there for like 10 kilometers trying to ride everybody off their wheel. It's just this very different kind of brutal body blow. Yeah, that was actually, I actually know who that was. That's uh, Aki Sato, also known on the internet as Sprinter Della Casa. Indeed. Um, Re- and his blog is well worth reading back through. He, that was one of the, he reading his blog right as I was getting into bike racing in like 08 was 
It was very informative, very educational, really set the tone for how I would view a lot of bike racing. Yeah, and this that was especially true too in the era when he was coming up in in really following bike racing in in you know the eighties, which was really a different, very different time. Yeah, uh, in some ways, and and also not in others. But anyway, um, we should probably bring it back to the tour, the tour, uh, indeed. and maybe talk talk about a little bit about this year's race, uh, what it's going to be like, you know, what 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 sort of the overall uh, overall lay of the land is. Let let's. Let's do that, but first I want to wax a little bit nostalgic. Um, oh yeah! And I have I have Go really fond it. memories of watching the Tour de France when I was getting into bike racing, when I was living in New York City, and uh, a bar on the Lower East Side called the Lakeside Lounge uh, was owned by a bike guy, um, who also happened to be like a really accomplished musician. Um, and producer and all this rad stuff, but a really great guy, Roscoe, uh, Roscoe Amble, Eric Amble. Um, and all during the tour, he would open up Lakeside Lounge. He would make sure that his bartenders were playing sort of like a two hour long recap on whatever TV station was showing it like between, I don't know if it was like five and seven or six and 8 PM. And like all of the bike people that I know would, Converge on Lakeside, which was like a wonderful, like cramped, kind of dingy, very homey bar uh, that was very much out of step with the gentrification happening around it. And, you know, if, if you were riding your nice bike and you didn't have a lock, whatever, you could bring it into the bar. There's room by the windows and on the stage, no problem. And it was two for one happy hours and we'd watch the stage replays together, which, you know, two hours they cut a lot out of it. Um, but it was enough. It was enough to watch the stage and, and watch the race and get into it. And I would do that like three or four times a week in July. It was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, that was, you know, the Tour de France, as for many people, was the first bike race I actually watched. Of course, the first one I, I actually watched pretty much all the way through was 2006. Awkward, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I you know, I enjoyed it, and and then was like, oh, you got to be kidding me, <laughs> when then, uh, uh, you know, of course, Floyd Landis tested positive, and and uh, things of of that particular kind of blood doping era really uh, after that was a after turning falling point. on the heels of Operation Puerto really unraveled. Yeah. That was a turning point. I all right, you know, we're gonna let's. I feel the need to stick a bookmark in this and say, like we, we're dancing around it, and it's hard to talk about the Tour de France without talking about doping, and we're gonna get to mm. it. But for now, we're gonna talk about the tour. We'll get yeah. we'll get to we'll get to the D word, vitamin we absolutely D. Absolutely will. But for now, you know, the I think the tour and and grand tours and bike racing in general does stand on its own very much uh without doping i mean doping you know in the in recent decades has cast a specter but you know it's still we still have we still have good sport oh yeah i feel ways about that greg yeah me too and and really i mean the thing about the tour that gets me this is i guess still on big picture stuff the thing that's so so great is that you have and I, you know, a million different people have said this a million different times, but you have this overarching plot of what's happening with the general classification contenders and how they're doing, 
Um, but you also have, you know, a different chapter every single stage, uh, you know, which is kind of a different, a different little vignette uh, playing out. There's, there's just a zillion different stories in the race, and some of them you see, a lot of them we, you know, end up not really seeing. But, you know, you can get really amazing stages uh, that that has have kind of a an arc within themselves, and then you have the overarching um, sort of story that they fit into. Yeah, and cycling's really good as a sport. Something I've heard described—I don't remember um, where this is originally from—but I've heard, you know, especially in terms of I, I don't know, I guess baseball, that there there are fans who are uh, statist, you know, number people, and then there are story people, right? And the number people are the ones who are really into the statistics, statistics, and and all the sabermetrics and stuff like that. And then there are the people who are into the stories, right? The dramatic comebacks or the amazing winning winning streaks or all like that and i think cycling doesn't isn't really super amenable to statistics unless you're like i don't know you have power data for people or whatever but it sure is amazing for if you if you like stories in your sports yeah i, I one of the things that um makes grand tours such a fertile ground for stories is that so much is happening within the race. So, you know, the yes, there's one overall winner of the tour, but, you know, 21 people, or there are 21 stages that can be won, and each of those is, is can be a career-defining win for somebody. So even on, you know, the boring stages when, you know, a breakaway has nine and a half minutes over the field and the field is just, like, taking it easy, those three or four guys in the breakaway are, like, like gutting it out for some serious career honors. And then there are all these other sub-competitions within it. And while, you know, our earlier point was that it's not like any great tactical feat necessarily to win the tour, you know, figuring out what's going on with all of these sub-competitions and how it may or may not benefit you, like, that's a that's a pretty complicated chess game with, you know... Who knows how yeah. many? Who knows yeah. how many and, sides? Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to by saying that it's not like a tactically complicated race. I, I don't want to understate, you know, the difficulty of it. I mean, in terms of having to remain focused and attentive um, all the time, and you know, so that you don't commit major tactical errors like missing a split in the wind or something like that. Uh, because that is that is why that happens. It's not because people don't know. It's because people are caught sleeping. And it is really easy if you've ever done a bike race that's longer than uh, you know a couple hours, um, like a road race. It it can get real boring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and it can be really really hard to keep your head in the game. And you know, in, it's not like three hours because I've the longest race I've done has been you know just a little shy of three hours, I think, road race. Um, you know, and we're talking more like five plus hours, uh, <laughs> day after day after day. So I don't want to understate like it as the mental challenge of the Tour de France, but I, I, I only meant that it's not, you know, it's not like trickery and deceit and, uh, clever brinksmanship, uh, that wins it, which is what some people have been given the impression. I think, I think those, those elements can happen, but. More often, it's more like, yeah, you know yeah. how. Well, witness witness two thousand six, where um, 
<laughs> Floyd Landis's team thought they were oh so very clever where they let uh, the break of the day get you know just enough of a lead uh, to hand the yellow jersey over to Oscar Pereiro, right? Thinking, ha ha, <laughs> you know, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna put the yellow jersey on another team, and it's gonna be so clever because we won't have to work hard to defend it. <laughs> um, which which is your sort of like you know mustache twirling like, uh, you know, amazing grand tour strategy special tactics play. Um, and it's, it is incredibly stupid and almost no one has ever done because you, ne- you should never deliberately give up time <laughs> to, to, to someone who has even the tiniest potential to actually go and, and be a threat to your race. Um, just never, which, you know, which is why I laugh when I see, you know, uh, analysis when, say, someone takes a leader's jersey kind of early in the race, like when Contador took it in the Giro this year, and everyone's saying, oh, the team isn't very strong. Maybe he shouldn't have taken the leader's jersey. It's such a long time to defend it. It's like, <laughs> you, you don't not take the leader's jersey. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not... I think that, yeah, the, the idea that, yes, it it's difficult to defend the leader's jersey, but if you weren't defending the leader's jersey, you'd be trying to make up time or limit your losses or like yes you, exactly you'd still be riding hard you're still gonna you're still gonna end up uh uh that that no matter what a lack of team strength is gonna bite you and it's not about uh not having the leaders anyway um but that's that's a tangent uh but i i, I actually kind of lost where we were but i uh, <laughs> the tour de france um <laughs> ever, ever heard of it it's a bike race oh it's a bike race it's a very good bike race uh, I think. I mean, I really do enjoy it. I, I am looking forward to it. I have not. I have been following what's been going on. So I think that you know, I I, I do feel capable about talking uh, of talking about kind of who's on form, uh, who we should be looking at, uh, general prognostications. But I I have not actually like watched the video of a whole lot of bike races lately. I so yeah. Right about now, there are like three races that are sort of important. Uh, tour check-ins there's tour de suisse also known as the tour of switzerland it's my preferred name because people know what the hell you're talking about <laughs> indeed there's the criterium de dauphine du dauphine du ah <laughs> sorry he's such a jerk <laughs> and there's oh crap what's the other one help me out here bail me out <laughs> um, uh the other one um <sighs> I don't actually. Root, I think Root de Sud. Oh, Root de Sud, right. Root de Sud. Root de Sud, yes. Root de Sud. <laughs> One of those Spanish stage races. And oh, no, it's French. What am yeah. I talking about? But, you know, basically, like this is the time when you start to see uh, the contenders in some way showing a glimmer of form, right? Because, yeah. you know, just to get everyone who, you know, maybe listening sort of on the same page writer's forms comes and go that writer's form comes and goes and you know people need to sort of steadily build and often yeah they want to they want to put in a good performance before a major race even a three-week long major race during which their form is likely to still fluctuate yeah and and these are just the traditional lead-ups and we've got some shadow boxing and you know traditionally oh you know it's the Dauphiné, and if you're going to do well, uh, you should be up there in the top ten, maybe of the Dauphiné, but probably not, probably not winning it. <laughs> Though that's that formula has been turned on its head somewhat, um, right? 
in recent years. Uh, and of course, the Tour of Switzerland as well. It seems like the Tour of Switzerland uh, is is also a big tune-up, but uh, it, it seems less. It, it seems like less of a. It, it, I feel like there's less of a correlation between a high placing in the Tour of Switzerland and, the, and a high placing in the Tour de France. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's uh, just crazy talk. Whereas the Dauphiné often has like some of the decisive stages that the riders will see a few weeks later in the Tour. Yeah, it's very much a, a reconnaissance kind of race. It, it almost always includes at least a couple uh, of the of the stages or major climbs in those stages. Yeah, uh, in in some way. So you know, ever so so that's what we've seen. And so coming out of these, uh, we've had these three three races. We've had the Dauphiné that was won uh, for his second time by Chris Froome. And we had the Tour of Switzerland. Who won the Tour of Switzerland? Um, Simon Spielock won the Tour That's of Switzerland. That's right. It was Simon Spielock. I was just remembering. I was so like, oh, he, shoot, he kind of, you know, limited. Like... Yeah. He's, that's one of those situations where it was, you know, the, the uh, race was won in a slightly unpredictable way where he uh, kind of limited his losses throughout the race and then crushed some time trials. Well, I feel like that's really a very common way that the Tour of Switzerland has gone in recent years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's been that's been a really really common mode uh, uh, for the Tour of Switzerland is being decided in uh, the final time trial by often someone who had had done well but but you know more limited their losses. I think that's how Roy Costa won it um, at least one or two of the times he's won it um, was going from a good position to top of the top step. Right. Yeah, I, I just wouldn't have expected to see Simon Spielock doing that. No. No. Well, you know, Frank Schleck won it in the time trial a few years ago. Well, but that's just, uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe enough about that. And, and that's what I have to say about the war in Vietnam. <laughs> right. And, and Route de Sud, um none other than Alberto Contador, I believe, won that. So we're touching we're touching on some of the big names here. Uh not so much yeah, Simon Spielock, but like Contador, Froome, uh you know, I, I guess the other really big two are uh Vincenzo Nibali and Nairo Quintana, who both of them yeah. sort of historically show their form much less leading up to a uh a targeted event. Yes. Yep, that's true. Um, um, so what do you, I don't know, what do you think? What do you think of uh, these guys? I think that, so first of all, with Contador, uh, he raced the Giro d'Italia, uh, did pretty well, I guess. Um, and I just think that it's it's very unlikely that when, when we're going to get into like, you know, getting pretty deep into the third week that he's still going to be fresh enough to be competitive in the tour. I just don't see it happening. Yeah. It, it, it seems hard to, hard to believe that that is likely. He, it's interesting that he agreed to actually try and go for this double. Yeah. I mean, I, that just sounds to me like a sort of twilight of his career type of move. Hmm. Yeah, and trying to kind of trying to go out with a bang a little bit, and and maybe like he has something to prove. I mean, we're talking about Contador only has uh, officially two Tour de France titles, right? 
I'm not sure. I believe 2007 and 2009 are the that ones sounds, that he holds. That sounds about right. And, you know, he also has, like, the reputation as being the best Grand Tour rider of, like, yeah. the this century. Or of his generation. Just, yeah, let's anyway. just go with that. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I was thinking of, for some reason, I was thinking of the 20th century. It is not the 20th century anymore. <laughs> uh, You're living in the past, okay. Greg. I'm living. I'm living in the past. I was like, well, geez, the entire century. I mean, that's quite a play. Um, <laughs> I mean, any marks. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about Conor? Do you like him? You mean as a rider or for the tour? As a as a rider. Uh, I I used to hate the impenetrable way that he was just so good. You know, just destroying it on the the mountaintop finishes, and then w- turning around and winning a time trial the next day. Yeah. Um. But that that follows kind of how I feel about cycling in general is that the I tend to get a little bit peevish at dominant riders. Yeah. I yeah. I prefer no, I prefer seeing sense. greats toppled than made. Yeah, and I think people often feel that way. I, I actually, since since his, uh, or I guess right before his ban, and then and then coming back from the ban, um, I've liked him a lot more. He um, seemed a lot more human. He seems a lot more human. A lot, um, yeah, a lot less of that kind of sense of being impenetrable and 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 sort of Mister Super Stoic. Um, and you know, again, it keeps coming back to the doping thing. I don't think there's a whole lot of doubt about what was going on. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in 2009 and in 2010 uh, and all that. I don't know what's going on now, um, but it, certainly it's not the same because it, I, I and I remembered it was. It seemed very weird to me when you know he he, he won in 2007 and. Uh, of course, because Michael Rasmussen got kicked off. Oh my God! Just what a what a topsy turvy turvy few years we had. Uh, he won, and the whole you know he was sort of the great white hope. With you know everyone knew that uh, Rasmussen before he got thrown out. Um, you know everyone kind of knew that that this was not a legit performance uh, from him. He'd never been a contender uh, before uh, for the overall. Uh, but it was like, well, Contador is the only one who's really at his level, um, young rider, but his time trial is a weakness, you know, not as weak as, uh, uh, Rasmussen's maybe, but a weakness. And then along comes, you know, the Contador of 2009 and all of a sudden he's one of the best time trialists in the Peloton and, and everyone just seemed to be like, oh yeah, Contador's a really good time trialist. He, he's always been a really good time trialist. <laughs> so I felt like I was sitting there going, like, what? When did this happen? He's the, he's the Spanish time trial champion? I mean, yeah, Spanish time trial champion, but still, like, <laughs> WTF. Uh, and and that has that has gone away. Now he's he's much more vulnerable. You know, we've learned more about what it was like when he was on the team with uh, Lance Armstrong and just the, the just pure amount of crap he had to put up with. Um and you know, I I uh, I got a lot of respect for the guy. I think he's a tough cookie. Hmm. I'll tell you what was a really what was a, the, the one of the interesting stories I heard about Contador that really humanized him to me, uh-huh. which was that um, 
you mentioned, you know, when he was on Astana with Lance Armstrong. And I think I remember reading this story about how, like, uh, there was some, some mountain stage and he, he didn't feel like he was getting good enough equipment from the team. So he went out and bought, like, on his credit card some wheels by that, that European company, Lightweight, that makes extremely light, uh, yeah. well, lightweight aerodynamic carbon wheels. So I heard that story. Um, then I also heard a story several years later that, you know, he, he, had, he has his ideas about what equipment is good and what works. But at the time, you know, on a... Uh, I'm not sure if, what team he was on at the time. But, you know, they were sponsored by Zip and... Uh, as big companies do, you know, they bring the star athletes to their headquarters and they show them around and they're photographers and this and that and there's all that. Um, but like Contador just like wasn't really engaged in the whole process. And so like the Zip marketing staff had to sit down with like Contador's entourage and like work with them about like how to convince Contador that this stuff was like worth riding and, and was good. <laughs> um, and all, yeah. all of that is like a pretty interesting and a pretty funny story. But like what really does it to me is that like to his entourage, you know, to his, his friends and confidants, um, his name is Bertie. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which just um, seems charmingly goofy and perhaps childish <laughs> and like not at all this kind of impenetrable spanish nobility like facade that he sort of puts up birdie yeah well you that's know and i think like, that he sorry that's a cartoon character name no it is it's it's very funny and it is at odds <laughs> at odds with his kind of persona but you know I, I also think that he he has a very kind of typical sort of uh pro cyclist european pro cyclist interview sort of persona you know oh, the sensations were good kind of you know not not really giving a whole lot and especially because you know earlier on in particular his english was really poor right um, i always wonder what the what the effect of the language barrier is on that 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 idea of of the distance between Contador and other people. I mean, I think that's a big part. I know a lot of people, American fans, at least ones I was talking to, were kind of cold on him. Yeah. Um, you know, he he didn't come across well. I think to American audiences anyway. And I didn't really like him. I didn't really like him either. But it didn't help that he was like just crushing everyone in a maybe somewhat exciting fashion. All right, so that's Contador. Uh, I guess I, not to go too much off into those. I want to talk about each of the uh, kind of. I guess the big four, mm -hmm. um, a little bit. So Contador, we're, 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 I kind of agree with you. I, I'm sort of, I don't, I don't know. I think he's going to get real tired. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, he certainly is going to animate things, um, cause that's what he does. Uh, but it seems, it seems a, a win is hard to see. Yeah. So the other, I guess, big favorite, well, there's several, but, but the next one that comes to mind is Froome. I don't know. What do you, th what do you think about Froome? Um, so he notably lost the tour last year, I think is the way that I want to put it, by crashing himself out in the first week a couple times, breaking some wrists. And several times. So, you know, he's, he's Froome in a nutshell is an incredible power-to-weight ratio uh, slammed onto a grasshopper that cannot ride a bicycle. <laughs> 
And that is what he looks like. Yeah, He's the grasshopper. It's, it's terrible. It's ungainly. And we like things like uh, grace and souplesse and panache, and that's not what he has. <laughs> no. No, he he he's very kind of gangly and awkward, and when he kind of spins up those pedals at you know eight thousand RPM, it's just oh, it's uh, it's all angles. It was eighteen elbows sticking out in every direction. Chris Froome has more elbows than I, I think that he's some kind of mutant. <laughs> um, so my take, so so kind of an interesting little thing about Chris Froome, right? He he went and he won in 2013 as we know in at least at one point in fashion that seemed quite almost kind of alarming uh he was so good he was so much better than everyone else mm-hmm. uh, on the climbs it was like uh, um you know i'm again not gonna not saying that that i know anything dancing around the d word again dancing around the d word again uh well i but i really don't i really don't have any accusations to make it's you know this is the problem you always have when someone's really good um is 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 then you think well they must be up to something right we don't just want to delegitimize all our winners (laughs) right so it was but but yeah so so but he was i guess what i'm saying is he was he was dominant at a level that was was pretty remarkable um (laughs) no none of these superlatives sound good anymore (laughs) Uh, damn it um but so i but my impression is i don't know if you remember but somewhere around um uh the very beginning of 2014 or end of uh 2013 there was some article or or some widely quoted thing where he was saying, "Oh yes, I'd like to win multiple Tour de France's. I I, you know, think I can win six. Uh, and people were quoting that and saying, "Like, yeah, yeah, that's totally what he can do, and that's totally going to happen." Um, and I was like, I thought that was so interesting uh, because this keeps happening where we have someone who looks really, really good. Uh, Contador, everyone says, ah, this is the next multiple tour winner. Because that's the mode everyone's used to. Mm-hmm. right? So I, I I don't think this is entirely Chris Froome's fault, but I thought it was incredible the way um, the cycling journalism world kind of jumped on this and was like, yeah, Chris Froome is the presumptive winner for the next, you know, several years <laughs> of the Tour de France. And it was like, well, Contador was the next, was the winner, for, the presumptive winner for the next several years uh the tour of france and yet we have literally not had a repeat winner uh in 10 years counting that lance armstrong guy who sort of doesn't count kind of you know if you uh you know if you consider him still to be a repeat winner he's the last one and that was 10 years ago i think the point Um, the point that that makes to me you know is that it's (laughs) grand tours are just so chaotic and impossible to control and yeah. anything can happen. And year after year, anything can happen. You could, you know, the race can be lost by an untimely flat tire. And that's before we're getting into, like, crashes, injuries without crashes. And not just an injury or a crash in the race, but an injury or a crash two months prior can mess right, it up. Like, right. there's a lot of time. There's a big Saddle pool. Stars. It's sort of like if you, like, drive a car long enough, you're going to get into a crash. You know, like... There's a there's yeah. a big pool of potential error and potential right. little things that go wrong that turn into big things that are going to preclude someone winning the tour six times in a row. Yeah, well, well, to bring it to bring the, this this all back to Froome, I mean, my take on him is that um, 
he is he is an incredibly powerful powerful rider, but but also very very delicate. Uh, and I don't just mean like I don't mean like physically delicate per se, like his bones are made out of glass, but but everything kind of needs to be just so for him. And if if things kind of go awry, then he has serious problems. It, like he he does he he is not kind of durable in the way that well honestly like Contador has been durable mm-hmm. uh, and and kind of flexible and able to respond to adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we'll see. I think that he's a very very um, good favorite to win. I mean, you know I don't want to get into ridiculous uh, <laughs> correlation kind of analysis that people do. But like, well, the last time that Chris Froome won the Dauphiné, he won the Tour de France. Uh, and he won the Dauphiné this time. Therefore, um, it doesn't quite work like that. But certainly, um, him winning the Dauphiné means that he's on track for the kind of form that he would need. Yeah. So very much a threat. And and you know if he can kind of keep his crap together, um, you know he could he could come out on top. Got got any more comments on Froome? We should probably keep moving along. Let's keep moving along because I really want to get to Nairo Quintana, who is just like the most exciting rider in the peloton to me. Do you want to do him last or do you want to do him now? Let's do him right now. Sure. I mean, he here's a guy with the face of a 50-year-old. He's 24, 25. He made his tour debut last year and just, like, crushed everybody. I mean, he was – oh, no, two years ago. Two years ago. Two years ago he made his tour debut. Kind of crushed everybody, was attacking Froome and making up time, but kind of, like, ran out of stages in which yeah. to make up for some of the, like, early tour imperfection and – time losses and Quintana yeah he's just when when you think about the the kind of like uphill racing that you want to see which is like crazy attacks long attacks like vicious sharp attack attacks that's the kind of racing that Quintana does that not a lot of people do yeah he's very dynamic yeah and I just exciting you know he won he won the Giro last year, and he got the previous year. He got second in the Tour, and he won the, the white jersey for the best young rider. Uh, I I just I'd love to say that this is his year, but he's this is I, going I, a huge competition. I think that Quintana is um, for you know it's always hard to say. He, he traditionally doesn't show his form as much as you said, but he seems like the presumptive kind of favorite to me. I mean, I remember when. Like I said, that story about Froome where he was like, oh, yeah, I'd like to win, you know, the tour six times. Everyone's like, oh, Froome is totally going to win the tour six times. And it was like, um, Quintana? Yeah. <laughs> anyone want to anyone wanna talk about the, the skinny little elephant in the room uh, <laughs> that climbs really well? The diminutive elephant. <laughs> you know, he's, he's younger than Froome. Uh, he's pretty, pretty fast. So we'll see. He's, you know, very exciting. It's got the weight of history there, you know, as being from, from South America. Um, that would be really cool uh, to see him pull that off, you know, and it's good to see Colombians doing well again. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I guess then there's uh, Nibali. Who has won the tour before, which I always need to keep reminding myself of <laughs> because Vincenzo Nibali is a is a very good bike racer, and I, I would also probably say that he's he's probably the best bike racer in the peloton to not have won any major one day races or even semi major one day races. 
Yeah. Despite the fact that he's like given it a good college try a bunch of times and has a couple, uh, you know, Milan San Remo podiums under his belt. Yeah. But here's a guy who's just like really great at getting third place in Grand Tours. <laughs> I, am I wrong? Well, am I wrong? Uh, I'd, I'd be curious to look up how many third places he actually has. Um, he, he's certainly finished kind of just off just off the top a few times. Was he in third place in the Tour in 2013? Is that right? Uh, he didn't race the Tour in 2013, but in 2013 he got, oh, he got okay. second in the Vuelta. He got third in the Tour in 2012, second in the Giro in 2011, third in the Giro in 2010. He does, he does have a win in every Grand Tour, which is pretty good. Yeah, that's not bad. But, you know, I as... As much as like I like him as a racer, he's he's fun to watch and he's he's got like a lot of grit. Oh yeah. But the reason Pen- that Nash he won galore. the tour last year was because Contador and Froome both crashed out. Right. And, he he, know, wound, he wound know... up winning by seven minutes over Jean Christophe Perot and Thibaut Pinot and Alejandro Ververde and TJ Van Garderen. Yeah, there there was there was no one else really kind of in his league there and it seemed like it's hard to tell you know you can't tell when people aren't there but it seemed based on from what i saw anyway of of, of the <laughs> power analysis right of of about what level of power he was doing up up the climbs to be about roughly on par with um 2013 from mm-hmm. um so so in and then so then presumably kind of it would have been fighting for the podium uh anyway but would he have won? Well, you know, you can only race who's there. Uh, but but that race did kind of fall into his lap a little bit. <laughs> yes. And that's part of it. That's part of racing, too. I I think I've maybe won races that fell into my lap a little bit, too. But it probably weren't as big as the Tour de France. <laughs> but, like, he's, he's there. I just don't see him, like, defeating Contador, Froome, and Quintana in, like, open combat. Yeah. So. Yeah, I hear that. Well, um, where are we at? We, you know, we've been we've been chatting for a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're kind of still on the tour. We covered the big four. Covered the big four. Maybe we'll make this one a, a bit of a long one since it's our special tour preview. It is. And uh, we can talk a little bit about the race itself, and and then maybe go into you know, dun dun dun. Le Tour and Le Dopage a little bit just to <laughs> just to air our feelings on that. I, I think as I, I want to get it out in the same show. We've been dancing around it and, and maybe it might be time to just hit it head on. Yeah, let's do it now. Because we've also on in the whole thirty something episodes of WHBP, we haven't really brought it up. We've been a little bit reluctant to or eh, slow to. Eh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's slow. Suffice to say, let's get something out there. Doping, we're against it. I don't care for it uh, personally. Yeah, we're we are not we are not for it. <laughs> uh, you know, in the feelings, but but uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I'm sort of not even sure where to dive in. Well, I'll say this. I'll say this. Uh, I. I believe that cycling is a lot cleaner. Yeah. 
but which also, is not to say that like the winners are clean. I don't know if they are or if they aren't. You know, like, sure, all that stuff. I don't know if the testing protocols are like are good or if they're working or this and that. Like some former dopers have said that the biological passport was like a big uh, dissuading force to them. That's good. Mm -hmm. Times up some of the major climbs are slower than during the sort of peak EPO years. That's good. These are these are yep. positive signs. Yeah, they absolutely are. It, it certainly, at the very least, um, it seems that I, I think there's no doubt that there is still um, doping going on. There is no question about that. Uh, and you know, to and, some and extent, that's, and I that's, mean, that's every sport. That is every sport. There's, yeah, to, there's to be clear. some type of physiological, but, chemical cheating going on. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like we, at the same time, we don't need to be defensive about cycling. Um, right, yeah, I'm just, I, I you mean, know. yeah, I guess I am a little bit defensive, but also, like, sort of contextualizing it as yeah. normal. You're, yeah, you're you're among friends here. Um, no need to be, <laughs> <laughs> no need to be defensive. Um, oh, shoot, train of thought. Uh, yeah, so it, it definitely, it seems as though... So I don't know who's doping and not. Is it? I don't know if the winners are doping or not. Um, I hope not. Things are kind of at you. The the part of the difficulty is that the people who are winning races, like the Tour de France and stuff like that, if they are doing them clean, um, they are kind of not surprisingly going to be right, kind of at the edge of of what is humanly possible. Um, you know, because you're talking about presumably the best bike racers on the planet and and that can make it sort of fuzzy like oh is this sort of borderline doping is it obvious doping some you know because back in the day it was pretty damn obvious mm -hmm. um and today despite what some people will say i I'd, I'd say it's less obvious and to the extent that it's happening it is it certainly seems to be reduced and that's you know if you want 100 clean that's not i this gets into culture versus um I, I guess anti-doping protocols, right, uh, as, as the thing to rely on because um, you can't catch everything. What, what you can do with good protocols is make it harder to get away with and make what you can get away with smaller. And that is a win um, to some extent. Yeah, because, like, I don't... If, if someone is, like, trying to figure out how to recover a little bit better and they take some supplement that has, like, some obscure... Like well, D D H E A or whatever is that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what, which one that is. It's one of those long-winded. It's a steroid of some kind. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of stuff that's against the rules that has like very vague or marginal or like slim benefits, or like there's a lot of stuff that's against the rules that has like more health risks than benefits. Yeah, and so you know, like, well, I think that riders shouldn't do that. Like, if they are, I don't really care that much because I don't think it's screwing up the sport in the same way as like oxygen vector doping was making people into like superhuman robots. Yeah, that's true. I I would say that I definitely do care, but um, I think it is important that what people are doing now is less potent 
And I think that sometimes gets overlooked. Say, oh, they're still just cheating and they're they're microdosing, and it's like, okay, like that sucks a lot. Like, I don't think that people should be cheating. I don't think people should be, you know, injecting large or tiny amounts of uh, EPO into their into their veins. It's not it's not safe. It's not healthy. Um, and you know, it's against the rules. It's wrong. Ah, uh, but there's at least more, hopefully, hopefully, um, more of a chance for, um, the riders who, you know, are keeping a good head on their shoulders and, and staying clean to, to still be competitive, uh, with the guys who are cheating. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and there, there are, I don't know, there are always rumblings and it's really hard to know what's going on. People are saying, you know, with the Giro that it was particularly hard that oh things are creeping up again one thing i saw on twitter and, and we can kind of get into the kind of uh doping anger echo chamber on twitter a little bit um, <laughs> it's a good way to you know describe was, it yeah it was was a uh someone had put up uh it was uh oh shoot french guy um young french guy that we were just talking about not parode um pino tibo pino pino right tibo pino's time up one of the climbs in the dauphine saying like Oh, so I thought the times were supposed to be slower, and it was like his time was, uh, you know, the record-holding time now, and much faster than like Levi Leipheimer in two thousand seven or something. And it's like, like, you know, I'm not gonna go out there and say I am certain that Thibaut Pino is clean, um, but you know, it gets into the problems here, which is that you know, it seems likely that there was like a tailwind or something, uh, like like he might be doping but the, the like two or three minute difference like the two or three minute gap is is kind of beyond what you would even expect to be explained by like cheating mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and it's, so it's it's like things like this where every single thing is evidence that um someone's cheating it, it just gets difficult not because i i think that it's necessarily baseless um but it gets it just gets hard to take um just the constant negativity after a while and uh, you know i I'm, I'm trying to walk a line here um of not being like not being like well doping is not a big deal because that's not what i'm trying to say but at all um it's a it, it's a scourge is how i feel i have actually very strong feelings about it um but i also have strong feelings about you know trying to watch this sport to enjoy myself um and you know i want to oh gosh there's like a police uh expression not <laughs> politics um but but you know which is uh trust but verify you know yeah if i can it, like interpolate what you're saying a little bit here is that there you know you mentioned like the twitter doping anger echo chamber and yeah like you're, you're it's it's valid but you're tired of it um and it's a deluge and it's a constant it's kind of it's kind of an assault on everyone really and the prop part of the thing is you have like every single person well not every single person but, you, but you've got all these people on twitter who feel like they are there to be like mr anti-doping crusader behind their keyboard mm -hmm. um and it's like really what are you what are you doing like who are you like you're just some rando on twitter for the most part i think i like, think there is some throwing the baby out with the bathwater in a way that yeah like makes me wonder well, like why why too, someone like, is still involved like if someone wants to write off the sport because of the the recent past of like the past two decades and and epo and everything like 
that's that's sad but okay well i do think that for this contingent of you know they're kind of watching to point the finger like they'll, they'll kind of they're instead of watching races they're you know their sport is calling out calling out uh you know quote unquote obvious doping mm-hmm. you know what i mean and and uh you know you can different strokes for different folks i guess like you can do that but it just seems really uh sort of not what we're here for i don't know and, yeah. and again i'm trying to walk that line that line of saying like no it, like it's a totally okay to have suspicions like it's totally okay i was like when when chris Froome went away on that first big climb in 2013 uh i think there were a bunch of us on twitter who were going like uh what what just happened <laughs> you, you know uh because i think that's totally valid and, and that's now inescapable unfortunately but there just gets to a point where you know and and where where there's so much anger from people who, frankly, are not directly affected by it. it it's like, it totally makes sense to me when someone like um, Adam Meyerson or Tim Johnson or, um, oh shoot, just any number of other guys are really mad mm-hmm. at these dopers because like it's their careers. Um, you know that they they lost out on opportunities to these jerks and their friends lost out on opportunities to these jerks right like i totally think that the anger that guys like that have is is very legit yeah um but it's when it's like joe rando who you know has is like a cat four or whatever <laughs> it's like why are you so freaking angry at tom danielson <laughs> Like, why is it your mission to, like, every time Tom Danielson um, posts a tweet on Twitter to go and, like, tell him what a doping, doped, doper, cheater he is? I will say this. I just found out that Kurt Cobain had a drug problem, and I don't think I'll look at grunge music the same, in the same way. <laughs> yeah, and, like, and keep in mind, I'm not defending Tom Danielson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like... <laughs> I, uh, yeah, like not at all. I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just like completely off base and shouldn't find it so kind of distasteful. Like, cause we do have some stake. We, it's not like we have no stake, right? But it's like, I've never lost any money or, or career opportunities because of Tom Danielson. Mm-hmm. So it seems kind of ridiculous for me to be like, I don't know, um, flipping him off as he rides up a mountain i yeah i you know how like entertainment comes in many forms including Mm -hmm. hating the entertainment yeah yeah like have you ever picked up the new york times style section and like read an article about like nine-year-olds who are recommending real estate to their parents (laughs) <laughs> why well, i do not believe that i've ever discussed such an article with you but we'll roll with this example I, I, some things are infuriating and uh well, i i don't i don't care for making uh practice and entertainment of the infuriating in and of itself the the the, the act and the entertainment you know um well maybe it's like people who read you know maybe maybe the people who are like doing this maybe it's like the same kind of people who who like read um blogs of the political persuasion that they are against right because they're engaged in like the 
politics, but the conflict is also part of it. Yeah. 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 Like the yeah. And again, exactly. like you know, I think a lot of people who you know loved loved and love bike racing, but were like really let down by a lot of the participants. Like yeah, they're their anger is right on it's just it it can take up a lot of room and this is isn't this why we're like we've been reluctant to to get at this whole issue is like this conversation has taken up a lot of room and we don't we don't like having those conversations with our coworkers. We're like oh we're into bike racing oh yeah they're all dopers right ah. I mean, I've had, well, and this is an important example of why I am like, you know, when I say, you know, <laughs> to make it clear that I'm not just giving lip service, I had a conversation where, uh, you know, this came up, gosh, with my, my cousin of all people, who's a lovely human being, um, <laughs> like for real, like, like friend or whatever, who was, who like it came up and she was like, oh, well, um, and this is in reference to like amateur racing where she was like, well, it's just part of the sport. Right. And I was like, oh my God. You know, mm-hmm. like it poisons it poisons everything that we do mm-hmm. um, as amateur races racers. Like you know, people people see us um, going by in our little you know pissant local uh, you know preem sorry preem uh, you know our local uh, uh, industrial park crit and think oh they're they're doing drugs, um, and that is really terrible. Um, it's really poisonous and it also, you know, that's pretty bad when for development, if, you know, you don't, you wouldn't want like a kid of yours, if a sport has a reputation for being dirty like that mm-hmm. to get into it. And, you know, we have, um, pro cyclists who are riding in that era, who are trying to ride clean in that era, um, who are like, I wouldn't let my kid take up cycling. Yeah. Like I, I, I specifically tell my kid not to do it because it's, you know, it's so poison. So you know, lest there be any doubt. And, and, you know, I think I'm probably painting, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cop to the fact that I'm probably painting with too broad a brush on, you know, as, as I call them, Joe Randos on Twitter. Like, you know, when, when you've got a hero or someone you admire a lot who turns out has been lying like that, you know, that is a big, a big hit, but you know, nonetheless, I mean, context a little bit, context a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's also, it's just so difficult to be like, well, what, what do you do? Cause a lot of people, what people are mad about, right. Are these, um, six month reduced bands that, uh, Tom Danielson, for example, and Christian Van Develda and Levi Leipheimer, uh, and oh shoot, Dave Zabriskie got. And, uh, Hank right? Pappy as well, I believe. Um, did he? No, I don't remember. Maybe. Um, I can't, I, I can't keep track of like all, Yeah. But he he actually had had retired right before that. Oh yeah, um, and he may have been given a six month ban anyway. Right, he might have been given one anyway. Uh, but but you know, so people are mad because um, you know, well they didn't they didn't do their their time. They didn't serve in. They got almost like a slap on the wrist. And it's like you know, that's again, I get that. Um, but we also got to have tools available to get people to talk. So, you know, I try to see it from all these angles and, and, you know, without even going down the sympathy road of like, oh, it's so hard for the ones who, you know, for the dopers, like, uh, you know, there was that op-ed that, that Jonathan Vauders published a couple of years ago being like, well, you know, it's, it's hard because it's this thing you've been working toward all your life, um, and all that. I don't think that we need to take the sympathy for the dopers approach to see, to say, well, okay, there's still reasons that that makes sense. But it's still, but it hurts. Like I get that, you know, it sticks in the craw. 
Yeah. So, yeah, six in the craw. Uh, I, so I don't know where we're going exactly with this discussion, but I say the whole thing is really frustrating for me personally because it it has um, it has diluted some of the joy that I've been able to take in the sport, and and it probably does have something to do with why I'm you know a little less engaged because it's like man, I just can't, I just keep hearing things, um, and that's difficult, and it, and it makes me less inclined to like go and watch every single race knowing that the outcome might not be what the outcome appears to be. Yeah. So. I, one of the things that I, it, yeah. that I hate the most is those conversations with like the, the civilians, if you will. Mm-hmm. I feel like every time I've read like, I don't know, you shouldn't read stuff on the internet because you're going to come across someone saying things like, you know, they should just have a league where doping is allowed and a league oh, where God. doping isn't allowed. Which is... Yeah. It's just like the one opinion that I hate the most because, you know, one of the reasons doping isn't allowed is because it kills people. Yeah. Like, it's not just against the rules because it's, like, morally suspect. It's because it's dangerous. And when you put financial incentives on like patently physiologically dangerous stuff you're gonna wind up with dead people and we don't like to do that there's dead people i mean it's just yeah this is well worth talking about because it's one of those it's one of those opinions someone thinks that they're oh i'm such a rebel yeah i'm so clever this is so clever this is the solution um and it's just it's just a it betrays a complete lack of critical thinking about what's going on i think you know in addition to the danger part um you know there's also there's also kind of a certain philosophical incoherence to it um in that the sport is going to be bounded by rules anyway like no cutting the course whatever you know so it's like so this form of cheating is no longer cheating but these other forms of cheating are still cheating why is that (laughs) yeah you know so there's there's that problem um, as well as the fact that, you know, so b- basically there's going to be ways to cheat in this sport where cheating is now okay, <laughs> which is kind of like, wasn't the whole point to get rid of cheating? Well, you can still cheat. Yeah. Um, there is the fact, of course, that doping is illegal in many countries, but more to the point, um, yeah, the public is really not on board with this whole doping thing. Um, <laughs> sponsors are really not on board with this whole doping thing. Uh, it, it's just not it's not a way that you can have a viable healthy you know financially sustainable sport if you're like well okay no rules you know (laughs) and and if there are a few bodies along the way it'll be more exciting you know like people think i don't know like i I think people are picturing like this uh (laughs) like roman empire like bread and circus is kind of thing where it's like (laughs) you know we're just cheering on the gladiators in the arena and and as long as you know we get to see some blood and and some people die you know that everyone's going to be happy and it'll be fine and we can just just enjoy the entertainment um (laughs) but that's not actually that's not actually what the audience is um and so it doesn't work and and then of course if you've got a clean league uh, you've got to have doping controls in the clean league now because wouldn't it be great to show up to the clean league and actually be just like doped up to the gills? <laughs> like, come on! Like, who's gonna who's gonna do who's gonna race in the no credibility, no one watches it, no sponsorship? You know, all the doping allowed league. Yeah. 
No, you're going to race in the clean league and dope. <laughs> if you're going to break the rules, you might as well do it where it matters. Yeah, really. Against the suckers. <laughs> No, it's 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 just so it's just so stupid. And yeah, and you've got there's this guy who keeps making appearance. We, we can leave this thread soon, uh, but you know it's like some philosopher uh, who keeps going around. He's like the one who keeps getting interviewed on this, being like, "Oh yes, we should just let them dope. It's really not uh, substantively different than you know, I don't know, tree other things." Uh, and it's like, well, you might feel that way mr highfalutin professor but uh that is not how the public feels mm -hmm. and that's what matters yeah i also feel like i i get i get a little bit personal about it because i'm going to the national championships for track cycling this year for the second year in mm -hmm. a row and it's it's not like i'm in any danger of winning a medal like let's i'm not trying to inflate myself here but like I am going to rub elbows with the guy who goes to the Olympics. Um, and I don't know, cycling has this way of like getting you pretty close to the action. You know, as an amateur, you can race some of the same courses that the pros do, at least on a domestic level and in cyclocross. And you well, know, yeah, even in the Tour de France, you know, for, for a plane ticket and a bus ride, you can like stand like right there while they go by. You can... It, you can ride up the mountain and then stop and stand there as they go by. Yeah, it's 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 like and and you can ride the same courses. It's like saying like you can go throw the pigskin around at the Super Bowl and then open a beer and watch the game from like a lawn chair on the 30-yard line. Right, right. Right, exactly. Or it's like, yeah, you can <laughs> or or another example like, you know, it's it'd be like if I could like go to uh, uh, Fenway Park and, like, toss a baseball around, you know, with, with, with David Ortiz. Yeah. Yeah, like, then, while, like while you're in your, up, like, Pull up a lawn chair with a uniform. beer, like, on, next to the pitcher's mound. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, the closeness that uh, fairly ordinary people can have to high levels of cycling is far different than most other sports especially the the yeah. big sports i do i do have to actually after this have a little anecdote about about pappy ortiz sure we'll, uh... yeah so you know where, where i'm going with this is like just because i have like that glimmer of closeness which is again i will you know caveat with like it's it's proximity not like comparison you know i'm not I'm not saying that I'm like an elbow rub away from a ride in the Olympics here. Um, I can just yeah. race the same events. Uh, because of that proximity, I feel like that whole idiot's line about there should just be a doping league. I, I take that kind of personally as saying yeah. that like, well, if you want to do what you should do, you should just spend like a couple $10,000 a year and harm your body doing it. And yeah, and get a doctor and and risk your health and your future health. And I think that that just sounds like, really stupid. Oh God, yeah, no, it it is. It's insulting. It's like when it's like when I was hurt, when it was like, isn't that part of the sport? Yeah, it's like no, not like not any sport I want to take part of part in anyway. Yeah, you know, and it's when you hear when you hear rumors about guys in your scene, and 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 happily, I don't know of anything in this scene up here, but. You know, I, I heard a couple rumors um, in the scene I was in, and it was like, damn it, like, like what the hell is wrong with you, guy? 
that like, don't, don't mess with that shit. When you hear about when you hear about like the local guys and the and the rumors, you just and obviously like those are sometimes true because every year there are a couple you know news articles about some like cat three who was popped at a grand fondo or something like oh, that. God, right? yeah, that guy. And it just it just like kind of makes me pity these like people who are the the biggest fish in a small small pond. Yeah. I don't know. There's certain <laughs> you got to I don't know. I feel like as as a very mediocre bike racer, like I kind of suck. Like at some point, you know, you got to come to peace with the fact that you kind of suck and like like why are you racing? Like I'm competitive. I absolutely want to win races, but it's like there's more to it than that. Yeah. It, you know, it gets I think it gets I can I can I can certainly understand for people who are at a higher level how the temptation gets greater um you know when when you're really talking about big stuff but I don't know I guess I guess if you have a particular mindset then any you know at any level it matters really you kind of always want to be winning I mean that that certainly makes sense but um you know I think that it's really not that hard to understand like no like you wouldn't you wouldn't cut the course, would you? If you could get away with it, I mean, maybe they would, but it's like, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's an upbringing thing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But like, but to me, it just it, you know, as long as we're getting personally personal, it just kind of blows my mind because I, I feel like whenever I've done anything in my life to you know to get something kind of dishonestly, um, you know, even if no one else knew, it's like I knew. That doesn't count for much. Um, and that sounds very, I don't know, Norman Rockwell or whatever. Um, very, very pat, but I don't know. Seems, feels, feels true enough to me. Yeah. We've, uh, we've come a long way on this one. I think we've come a long way. I, I, I think that, uh, we might want to head out on a high note and and leave this behind for now basically ladies and gentlemen we here we here at whbp um, we have feelings about things um and those feelings do include feelings about about some more uh negative topics like like doping and whatever and, and we just want you to know we're against it we don't like it it makes us sad and that's not going to stop us from chewing over our feelings about other people who are made sad by doping that's right and about bike racing professional and local you know we're gonna we're gonna do our best to uh you know to to keep our eyes on on you know what we love about the sport we're gonna do our best and you should too absolutely and you know if if you're getting if you're getting bummed out about it you know step back a bit you know stop reading stop reading the velo news for a little you know for a few weeks Go, go, just like ride your bike, train. I don't know, do some races, just do some local crits, and uh, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. And to that, to that point, it'll be okay. I have another edition of a recurring segment. Thumbs up. <sighs> thumbs up. I'm so excited. I think we need it. I think we need thumbs up. We need to have our thumbs I've got up. Both thumbs up right now. All right, so I was at a so I was at a track race, uh, in Indianapolis, 
and sort of like a like a regional level race or whatever. I don't need to go into too much context. Uh, point of the matter is is that in a scratch race, scratch race is just a certain number of laps, and then there's a finish line. There's no trickery. It's to basically it. a crit on a track, yeah. It's basically a crit on a track, a little bit shorter than a crit, and because it's right. on a track, it's even awesomer than criteriums are. Um, the the one thing. Well, there's no turn. You, know, you just turn left. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even really have to turn. The track kind of does it for <laughs> no, you. No, not really. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> track bikes don't turn, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> People have asked me how to well, how to race on the track, how to ride on the track before, and I just say it's easy. If you start going uphill, turn left. Yep. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Story so, time. Yeah. So the one very important rule about track racing is that there there's the the innermost lane on the track is demarcated as the sprinter's lane, and the rule that applies to that is when a sprint is engaged. If you if you're the lead leading rider and you take the sprint lane, if you enter it, you have to stay in it. And if someone else is trying to pass you, they have to go outside the lane. And it's about, you know, two handlebars wide. Let's say, I don't know, maybe it's a meter. I don't know. So when sprint is engaged, if you're in the lane, you have the lane. And other people have to go around. And if you're trying to come around someone who's in the lane, yeah, you have to go around them and you can't come down into the sprint lane the pole position, the, the shorter way around the track until you have fully cleared them. And I was sprinting at the end of a scratch race and I, I opened up the sprint. I had to, it was a tactical situation. Um, and as a result, I, I was, I was hurting and I was fading and I'm just like trying to hold off a couple people coming around me in turn four and on the home straight. And one guy who's, who's doing so he's, he's definitely moving faster than me. As he comes around me, as he passes me, he just... And this is something that, that happens with powerful track riders, is that sometimes when you're putting down the power, the bike magically moves like laterally, like side to side, and it's kind of a little bit hard to explain. Um, and, and you know, banking comes into play, all that. But he's putting the power down, and he just he moves uh, left into me into the sprint lane and it's just a, a split second reaction like I, I yell and I jam on the proverbial brakes and I have to flick down track and I, I lose some speed and he was he was passing me but like it was a it was a moment you know and it happened a few meters before the finish line or whatever on the home straight so I, I just I hollered and I did an angry euro hand wave and I rolled through the finish line whatever uh, hashtag angry euro hand wave hashtag angrier hand wave i recommend that you you practice yours today because it's a just a a fine gesture um and you know we've here on whbp we've complained about other bike riders and other bike racers plenty before because our people are a vexatious type um but almost immediately like after a cool down lap this guy came up to me and he said hey did I come down on you in that sprint? And I said, yeah, you did. Uh, I, I know you're a good rider, uh, and I know that you were going faster than me, but like, that, w- that was a pretty good chop coming down, and I had to jam on the brakes. And he said, all right, man, I'm really sorry about that. I was going pretty hard. I'm sorry about that. And that was really nice. And then the other thing that happened was, 
the, one of the officials had had checked in with me and said, "Was that was that a violation that you saw?" And I said, "You know, I basically you know gave the same answer, like yeah, I had to jam on the brakes, came into the lane pretty hard, blah blah blah." And so this other rider was was given a, a relegation of, of one placing in the sprint, and so I was you know we were we finished fourth and fifth, and you know I, I crossed the line fifth, and he crossed the line fourth, and those those placings were reversed and you know when we saw the results he just he looked at me and he gave me a pat on the shoulder and said that was the right call i'm glad they didn't relegate me back further you deserve that and that was just like really nice it was just like a really like nice way to handle potential conflict yeah that's my thumbs up it was it's so easy to just have imaginary arguments uh and it's it's easy to get defensive and you know we're so many of us are competitive and uh and are looking out for our placings and it's just like that was just a move with such integrity that i really appreciated it it's yeah totally it's um it is so easy to get your dander up and get you know start yelling and you know throwing your shoes at people uh but you know it's 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 always nice when we can acknowledge our foibles um, and you know, remember that the officials are there, you know, for all of us to for these situations. Hopefully, hopefully, keep it safe and discourage uh, discourage crummy racing. And you know, yeah, it's nice to see it's nice to see someone both acknowledge, hey, you know, I'm sorry, uh, that wasn't cool, and and also take their lumps when they get them. Yeah, and be like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. And it also just it reminded me to like make sure that I handle situations in 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 the way that like I would respect if I were like seeing that in other people you know we and yeah. we've and we've complained about the you know the people in crits who are like yelling inside and like making bad moves and expecting <laughs> other people to compensate for them and uh, you, it just it just made me think a little bit harder about like you know how to have those conversations and then how to like yeah how to how to deal with you know one's own errors and how to how to broach errors in other people you know in this um in this crazy game there are a lot of things that can go wrong and not go your way and and when it comes down to it um you know you're gonna you're gonna lose a whole lot more than you're gonna win and really you gotta think you know what's all you can do is uh just lose even more gracefully and graciously than you win I, yeah I, people you know, respond I, to that I, I i'm a bike racer what kind of person do i want to be as a bike racer that's a yeah I, I i'm willing to ask myself that i'm willing to have that be like a part of this activity well, I wish everyone was as self-reflective as you. <laughs> Not everyone is, but you know, for the most part, for the most part, I, I do feel like you know we're for all that we gripe too. I mean, that is that is maybe above and beyond the call of duty, but you know, I feel like it's mostly a pretty hyper-competent world that we find ourselves in, um, in the bike racing. So that's good. It's good. Thanks for that. Yeah, me making giving me warm fuzzies. I it it almost seems like a, like a like a. A personal thing that happened so i'm kind of like reluctant to name this other rider but like yeah i don't know you know what i mean yeah yeah 
was just well you know it's like you don't want to be advertising hey this guy came into me even though it's like he's a good rider yeah i don't know i don't know and it was one of those things that happens on the track where like when there are riders you trust like they certain things are less big of a deal you know i mm. but i have i have like this one local rival i probably had more body contact with him than with like everybody else combined in bike races but it's fine I know, I know that we can bounce off of each other and handle it. Actually, a friend, a friend of mine, <laughs> we should close out the show, but uh, a, a good friend of mine down in um, Tennessee, uh, a racing buddy, uh, at the start of a century ride one time, um, I was riding close and we were, um, I don't know, giving each other crap, I don't know, <laughs> and I hooked my handlebars on his. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they got hit, hooked so hard that they lifted my front wheel off the ground <laughs> and sideways. Um, Did you go down? And I, no. Amazingly, it was like I got lifted up and sideways, and I managed to like it's like while I was hooked on his bar, I was like, oh crap, and like kind of like I don't know, pushed off a bit to get my wheel straight, like midair, if that makes sense. <laughs> Like, I was hooked on his bar, and if I'd, you know, just kind of, like, gone with it, I would have gone down, but I was able to kind of, like, oh, sh- oh crap, like, push off, straighten up, and just had a little bit of a a bobble, and, you know, it's like, that was, you know, it was pretty, um, it was a pretty dumb thing that I'd done. <laughs> like, that could have gone real bad, but, you know, when you're with a, a friend who you know um, and and knows you as otherwise you know a pretty solid rider i like to think i'm reasonably solid rider uh then it's like it was fine and it was like geez dude that was crazy and people were like holy crap that was crazy and then kind of nothing more was ever said about it because <laughs> you know it, it it happens some sometimes you do something even the best of us sometimes do something incredibly boneheaded <laughs> uh and you know when you're with people who are good and don't 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 freak out um there's you can maybe recover from that yeah that's important that's and that's a big um again this is wrapping up i promise because we're we're running for like an hour and a half um yeah it's pretty long but you know i I feel like as i've moved up um to the thoroughly middling uh racing level that i'm at you know the the big difference really is aside from yeah you know people are stronger in in the threes and whatever but but a big thing is that People, people become uh, accustomed to understanding that like crap happens. Yeah, you know what I mean. Does that make sense? It's it's not like it's not just that the ability level is higher as you move up, which it is, like on average. But that people people seem to come to some kind of understanding that like little mistakes get made constantly, and the best way to deal with those mistakes is um, to kind of correct for it and let it go yeah nice line there's a nice line actually I'll, I'll, i can close this with this there's a, a nice uh, moment in one of the sven ness videos um from cx hairs it's either previous season or the one before that i don't remember where um one of the rider i don't even remember who maybe it was someone um chopping Sven like coming essentially a similar kind of thing though on a cyclocross course coming like kind of right across uh, Sven Ness it might have been um, Mason or something 
uh, I don't know, um, but but really chopping pretty hard across him. And Sven kind of checked up a little bit, but just kept going. Yeah. And it, you know the sub the title on the screen was sometimes being pro is letting it go. <laughs> Swish. <laughs> All right, so that's been um, an extra extra special blockbuster edition of the Working Man's Honest Bicycle Program. We're we're glad that uh, you decided to join us for this at whatever time. Um, Tour de France is coming up. We're recording this June twenty second, so it's going to be pretty soon. Uh, it's probably going to be out. I don't know, a few days after that. <laughs> um, and we have oh yeah, lest lest we forget, I think that we're going to do a little Velo Games competition, aren't we? We are. We don't yet have a league um, name. We can't say, okay, join uh, our league and its name is thus. But why don't you stay tuned to our Twitter, both uh, the show and individually. So that's at underscore WHBP and at Rollby and at underscore Matteo. Stay tuned. We'll, We'll announce the Velo Games, Working Man's Honest Bicycle Velo Games League program. Right. Colon dot dot dot. Uh, yeah, and and see if you can uh, run a better a better Velo Games uh, team than we can. And I uh, we might even give something to the winner. Oh really? Sure. Oh. You so like the respect and admiration of their peers, like that kind of gift, like yeah. that kind of prize. Yeah, and maybe like a headband and like a five dollar bill and a like go buy yourself a drink. <laughs> Okay, but okay. but we'll put not, together. not we'll, definitely we'll, we'll that. Just it. just maybe that. Not definitely that, because I want to keep some mystique. Yeah, uh, I I think I could probably find a, a little bit of a a little prize package around here for the winner. Yeah, we'll I see think we can do that. We'll do. put our heads together. Swag. You'll find out. You'll find out when you win, what the prize is. Yeah, but yeah, I like that idea. It exists. All right, so. <laughs> so yeah, so 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 stay tuned to all of our various Twitters. They'll be on all three of them, I promise. Uh, <laughs> at underscore Matteo, at Grobly, and of course our show's Twitter account, count at underscore WHBP. You can email us um, to ask us what the hell we're thinking or tell us that we're full of crap or uh, that you like us. I don't know. Um, you can email us at honestbikeprogram at gmail.com. Look us up on iTunes, leave a review, leave us uh, many stars. Um assuming you like like the show and yeah thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time yes indeed good night boys and girls i it, i will tell you the ortiz uh oh yeah story because i forgot yeah so this is um the year was 2005 it was summer 2005 um, you know, if you are not a baseball fan, this was after the the summer after the Red Sox had won the World Series for the first time in eighty six years, <laughs> uh, which was kind kind of a big deal <laughs> around these parts. Sort of a big deal. I mean, a few people got excited about it, um, and my thing just blooped at me. So I was doing this really stupid job. It was it was like a canvassing job where you like get hired by like MassPerg and uh, so Public Interest Research Group, right? One of the one of the state mm-hmm. pergs, and like, you like walk around and knock on people's doors. It's not actually the perg itself; it's an organization that contracts with them. 
and you basically ask people for money um and it sucks uh it's terrible <laughs> and i really they chew you up and spit you out and if you're good at talking to people like extemporaneously and, and it getting to give you money um you'll love it and do well and otherwise you're gonna be out of that job in like three weeks like me it was amazing <laughs> it was amazing that i lasted that long it was i hated it i, I lasted i lasted two weeks in uh, new jersey perk yeah oh god it's the worst isn't it um yes oh it's painful so but anyway but but you know there was like a work hard play hard kind of thing and we wouldn't start working until like noon so a bunch of the people and unfortunately it wasn't there um were like were there in the morning and thought hey let's go out to uh let's head out to the boston common because we were like right there on winter street in boston and uh, and play some wiffle ball so they went out and played some we were they were playing some wiffle ball and this guy walking across the common comes over and is like hey um Mind if I uh, play? And it was it was Big Pappy Ortiz. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> it seriously was, uh, and and he played wiffle ball with him for a good like half hour. He's just hanging out, saw some saw some college kids playing wiffle ball, and was like, "Hey guys, let's play some." And I was so bummed that I I didn't get to see that. that I wasn't there oh, for that. Man. But yeah, That's it's a cool awesome. story. It's a cool. Well, you know, apparently uh, Ortiz, uh, from everything I've heard, like super nice guy. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. So that's my story.